Hey, thanks for joining us. Welcome back. Uh, sorry again about yesterday. We hope that we have made some wholesale changes. Michael has made some wholesale changes that we hope will remedy our freezing issues as of late. So we continue today with the Gospel of Luke. We're in the 11th chapter. Uh, we move into a section that I think probably, Michael, one of those sections that maybe people don't always know what to do with. There's some language stuff in this. There's some content stuff in this. Just This is one of those texts. I think some people love this because they get to dig deep into really strange stuff, particularly uh, you know spiritual warfare kind of stuff, and other people probably just Okay, that was good. Let's get on to the rest of the story. So we'll, we'll see what we make of it today. We're in verse 14. I'm going to read down through verse 23. Now, Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the one who had been mute spoke, and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. Others, to test him, kept demanding a sign from heaven. But he knew what they were thinking, and he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself becomes a desert, and a house falls on a house. If Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. Now, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your exorcists cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges." But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, when the kingdom of God has come to you, then the kingdom of God has come to you. When a strong man fully armed guards his castle, his property is safe. But when one stronger attacks him and overpowers him, he takes it away. His armor, which he trusted, and he divides the plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. So, uh, again, some of this is going to sound tricky. There is a really deep discussion. Some of your Bibles may, instead of saying Beelzebul, say Beelzebub. There's some interesting language stuff about the history of that word, whether it is translated properly. Beelzebul is the most early translation. Um, it's the literal Greek. Beelzebub is a little bit later edition, borrowed from a Hebrew word in the Old Testament. Um, by this time in narrative form, it really exists as a synonym for Satan. It, it has other meanings. It has other origins. But essentially, the charge here against Jesus, having exercised this demon, is that he's done so by the power of evil that he himself is in league with Satan and is somehow using this as a, a show or as a display, a deceit of being good himself. And, I, you know, Michael, again, easy to read by that, but that is a significant accusation. I mean, that, that's one of the most outright, and, and maybe out most offensive accusations we've seen. We've seen people upset with Jesus. We've seen them accuse Jesus of blasphemy. But this is literally saying he's in league with Satan, that he and Satan are working together. And I'm not sure we've seen something quite that direct. Yeah, and 
the commentators make that point, Clint. So I, yes, right there. I'm going to take that. And then let's take it to the next level. Notice who are making that accusation. Because in Luke already, we're up to chapter 11 together at this point. In the 11 chapters or 10 chapters before this that we've been in, we have become accustomed, as in the other Gospels, to the Pharisees, to the teachers of the law. They've been coming after Jesus. That Those are the people who have brought opposition. Let's look closely here today. Here, uh, it is the crowds who are amazed at the end of verse 14. Look at verse 15. Some of them, the crowds, are making these accusations about Jesus. The, the hostility being incurred here is not just limited anymore to some of the religious, uh, you know, uh, uh, who's who. This is now actually being reflected amongst the people around Jesus. The, the nitty-gritty uh, kind of common folks of Israel are now beginning to have some of those early signs of dissension, which unto itself, Clint, is a Lucan way of helping to inform us, the reader, that things are ratcheting up again, that the temperature is increasing. And that's only more accentuated by your point here, that we are having the accusation made that Jesus is doing this, not just by some random power, but by the power of the enemy himself. So it's the people who are raising the concern, that is important. The concern that they're raising is important. And this is just making it very, very clear to us, the reader, that the stakes are high in what you choose as, a, as it relates to Jesus. The, the question on the table is not who do you like more or less. The question is who stands on the right side of the kingdom? Who's, who is standing for God and who is standing for the enemy? And this story is going to push us into that uncomfortable position to see, first of all, how Jesus is going to respond to it. And then following that, it's going to force the question, how do we respond to it? There's a really subtle thing that happens here as well in verse 16. So this accusation has been made. He casts out demons by Beelzebul. That literally means Lord of the Flies. Um, but at this point, again, Satan, that's the reference. And then verse 16 said, others, to test him, kept demanding a sign from heaven. And this is significant. You, you know, these are just the things that uh, commentators help us, scholars help us. The word test here is only used one other time in Luke, and we've already seen it. It's when Satan tested Jesus. So here we have an accusation that Jesus is working with Satan while si simultaneously getting a challenge to Jesus to prove himself, which was the same test in the same word that was already seen when Satan was trying to sidetrack Jesus. So two accusations, or at least two um, different veins here of challenge for Jesus— in response to the, the charge of working with Satan, he offers three responses. The first is that a kingdom divided can't stand. In other words, if I'm working with Satan, why am I working against Satan? Why would I be doing exorcisms? That's not how it works. Secondly, he points out that the Jewish people also have exorcists. So if exorcism is done by the power of Satan, isn't that what they're also doing? And then finally, what if what I'm doing is of God? Why aren't you paying attention? And so kind of a threefold response here, and then we, then we get this illustration at the end. When a strong man is fully armed, guards the property, it's safe, but when a stronger one comes, he takes from him. This, I think, is, is kind of an interesting um, 
little detour, Michael. This is almost goes to Jesus kind of preaching a little bit. Uh, if you'd ask people who the strong and stronger man is, they probably may not have thought about it, or maybe they would have to take some guesses. But essentially what Jesus is saying is Satan is the strong man. He has house, he has armor, he has a kingdom, and Jesus is the one who is stronger and has come to plunder him. Jesus has come to to clean house, literally taking that which belonged and plundering the kingdom of Satan. And I, I think that's, in some ways, that is... Um, because of some of the weirdness of this passage or the weirdness in this passage, maybe that part gets missed. But I also I kind of think from a narrative or devotional reading, that's maybe the most interesting part of the text. I think that it's worth pausing here and, and looking at a text like this from the meta perspective. For those of you who join us regularly for these studies, you know that there's a kind of pacing to the scriptures. There's a kind of way of interweaving stories so that we can see movement in the story of Jesus. But if you're joining this study, maybe you searched for this story and this was of particular interest to you. This is, I think, a caution that we don't look at texts like this to explain themselves to us. Because if you do, if if you make this story a, a kind of, you know, a most important touch point for Jesus's teaching, you're going to think, that Jesus's entire life is lived from the perspective of who's strong and overtaking others, who has the most power, when you know that in Luke itself, just in the first couple chapters, we had Jesus teaching about how the weakest are blessed, how those who are uh, broken are blessed, those who are struggling are blessed, this whole litany of those who are the lost, least, and left out. And so a section like this is a fascinating inclusion in the themes and story that we've seen already. And I think what is really, really interesting is to see how Jesus does go toe-to-toe and make an argument. Lots of times in the scripture, Jesus doesn't argue actual points in relationship. He simply gives a parable, or he simply invites another question at the person who asked it. But here he does, as you laid out so clearly. He gives three responses, and ultimately he says— I'm here to take from the evil one, the very one that you're accusing me of being in league with, I'm here to take from him what is not his to have, and then to distribute or to give that back to the people of Israel. And then the question is, so are you with me or are you not? And and that, I think, is the pressing, very poignant question of this text, which is relevant. The rest of this may be difficult, you're right, Clint, in a Bible study context. We're going to struggle to tease out, you know, uh, what do we do with Beelzebub in our in our present life or in, in our day-to-day walk of faith. But, but here Jesus is making it clear. It is the kingdom of God that he represents or it's another kingdom. And, and we can relate to that in a meaningful way. What are the choices that we make that put us in the line of Jesus? And what choices do we make today that do not? And, and that is the invitation into a text like this. And I want to speak to something you said, Michael, but before we get there, I, I just want to point out, not to overdo this last bit here, but the one who is stronger, again, if we cast Jesus in that role and Satan or Beelzebul in this other role, what does he do? He attacks him. He takes away his armor. He he, he just he strips him. He it. This is not some kind of 
cosmic battle to see who wins. Jesus wins, and he divides his plunder, takes away the armor in which he trusted and divides his plunder. So uh, Jesus here is making no bones about the outcome of this struggle. So then it becomes a question of essentially which of these which of these options is one going to follow? Are you going to persist in the idea that Jesus is something else? Or are you going to persist? Are you going to embrace the idea that Jesus is doing the work of God? Whoever is not with me is against me. And to your point, Michael, about needing to put Scripture in conversation with other Scripture. If we turn back just a page or so, the 50th verse of chapter 9, here's what we read. But Jesus said, do not stop him. Whoever is not against you is for you. So we have Jesus saying two things that are very close to opposites. Whoever's not against you is for you. Whoever's not with you is against you. And we have to here work through things like context. To take either of those and think that is the entire summary, we instead have to think, well, this is Jesus talking about something else. This isn't talking about working through evangelism. This isn't talking about the sending of disciples. This is a fundamental question about reality. And does one see in Jesus God doing God's work? Or does one see in Jesus something else? And if they see anything else, they've missed it. They have it wrong, and they don't understand the truth. So I I think that's a helpful word, Michael, that we should never be content to simply live in one portion of Scripture. We should always put that in conversation with everything else we can find in it. Well, and let's not miss the kind of foundation of what's being argued here, that Jesus is being accused of doing what everyone would think is a good thing, by the way, casting out demons. No one is on the pro side of demons in this conversation. The accusation is that Jesus is doing that by the power of Satan himself, that Jesus stands on the side of the wrong kingdom doing this work, advancing that kingdom through his own kind of power, through his own kind of display. And Clint, if if that's the point being made here, then what's fascinating is it you got to think in that first century context, you have the people of Israel who largely feel powerless at the hands of Rome. You have these people who have been conquered, who are taxed, who are reminded year in and and year out that they are not the ones who are in charge of their own fate. And so here they have someone in their presence with agency, true spiritual power. We've seen this already in Luke, a teacher who teaches with power, who demonstrates with power. This is an amazing thing. And the question is, what do you see in that power? Is it insidious or is it good news? Is it a work of the devil or is it gospel of God's work in the world? This is the display of the two kingdoms when they're brought next to each other. And and I think what's fascinating is the choice being put to the people that day is to look into the eyes of Jesus and to see him for what he is. 
And when they are engaging in that conflict, we shouldn't be surprised when people in our own day struggle to make out Jesus for who he is also. The reality is that many people look to followers of Jesus and see duplicity. They see advancement for advancement's sake. They see the things that the crowd, in some way we can appreciate accusing Jesus of, remains accusations of people seeking to follow Jesus. And, and, And this is a it's a prescient kind of question. It's a it's a scale that we hold ourselves to when wondering, you know, what does it mean to be followers of Jesus? Who was Jesus? What kingdom did he stand for? And and where are we in our own discipleship? Are we in Jesus's kingdom, or uh, are we in some way possibly, um, you know, ourselves participating in in not Christ-like kingdom? I, I think it's what is key to this text is not the thing we gravitate towards. That is, hey, let's talk about spiritual warfare and, and Jesus's strength. But instead, it's what is the choice of discipleship and who is the one who calls us to that choice? And that is, unfortunately, I think, no smaller of a question. That, that remains a challenging question to this day. Yeah, one unfortunate footnote, and it will surprise nobody that knows, it will not surprise anybody who knows some church history uh, we've not always been trustworthy with this last verse here. Sometimes the church has used whoever is not with me is against me as a license to attack those who don't agree with us, as a, uh, a signal of animosity toward non-believers. And I, I would say just a couple of things about that. A, these are Jesus' words. And when Jesus says words, we have to be very careful in thinking we can somehow then apply them to ourselves. Uh, We know from much of the scripture, we are called out, we are called to be loving, we are called to be neighbor. This is Jesus' response, both personally and theologically, to being accused of working for the prince of evil. And Jesus says, no, if, if you don't believe that I'm doing God's work, you are against me. Literally, you are against me. And so I, I would just make those two points. A, we have to be very cautious with words like this because we don't get to just simply substitute ourselves for Jesus in saying them. And second, we know from the rest of Scripture we are not called to be against everybody who is against Jesus. We are called to love them. We are called to pray for them. We're called to bless for them, bless them, and we're try, called to try to bring them into the community of truth in such a way that they too can join the voices who proclaim that Jesus is the work and doing the work of God. And so um, just, I, I don't know that that's a danger for a lot of people, but there have been times the church has misused this verse and and we should not. I think that's a great summary and I don't want to risk muddling it. So I think that's a good place to leave it. I certainly hope you've been encouraged, challenged. Maybe we see this text in a new way. And uh, we would love to have you continue along with us so that you could discover the context of this moving story as we continue along in the book of Luke. But thanks for being with us today. Look forward to seeing you tomorrow. Thanks, everybody.